This is a podcast from 2MBS Spine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Spine Music Sydney. My guest today is a conductor who has fast established himself as a versatile artist covering the symphonic, operatic and ballet genres. Vladimir Fanchil has made a splash in Europe with such orchestras as the Marinsky, the Budapest Festival Orchestra and the Odessa National Philharmonic, to name just a few. He's also half of the brains behind Live at Yours, an exciting and seemingly ever-growing project which brings top-quality artists to unique and intimate settings. Vladimir Fanchil, thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. Thank you, Simon. Now, I want to begin with Live at Yours, if I may. Was it about making lemonade when life was giving you lemons? Absolutely. We were in lockdown. We were in Sydney with my wife, Eleanor. We normally live in Vienna, but we were in Sydney because she was singing Don Anna and Don Giovanni with Opera Australia, and lockdown happened. And during lockdown, we started working a lot on various repertoire, and then we thought a lot of our colleagues are getting into their pyjamas and doing all these really useless recordings, and we realised, wow, online just doesn't cut it because like where everyone's in a separate room and they're all playing little boxes <laughs> yeah I, I really don't get the point of it because making music is all about coming together and feeling vibrations and it's about the live experience of it so we came up with a couple of programs and as soon as restrictions eased we thought let's do what what they did a while ago and let's do salon concerts so we asked friends who had bigger houses or big lounge rooms if we could do a concert there and we did one two three and then suddenly demand grew and we ended up in about eight months doing 45 concerts 45 yeah that's that's more than one a week that is several a week and we ended up opening the concert halls in orange bathurst cowra mm. queen bee and yes we played in peter crisp's tin shed in yes which was awesome um and we realized something incredible that we'd been missing in our work everywhere we go we've been performing in big halls and it's fabulous and the life of a musician is difficult but fabulous and then we realized through performing in a lounge room the impact of the music on listeners is so profound it's so huge and also on us as performers i mean both Eleanor and I were so nervous for the first few performances because it's intimidating having people one meter away. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't, I don't know if it was completely COVID safe, but <laughs> with, <laughs> with an opera singer singing a meter away from you. But I could see, especially people who were first time concert goers, people who were just friends of friends who ended up at the house for a concert, and Eleanor singing an aria, which she'd normally sing in a theater for 2000. Mm. She's got a huge voice with a really good squillo, so she can project in any hall. And here she is in, in, in a lounge room. Uh, we're performing for just a group of 20. So when restrictions eased, it was just 20. Mm. And we were doing a one-hour recital for 20, and we'd talk about the music, and it was just very casual, very easygoing. Mm. And then we realized this is how concerts should be, Mm. except financially it doesn't make any sense. But it was a mistake that they became so big. So then what we started doing was... A lot of colleagues started asking us, how could we do this as well? So we started organizing concerts for others. And then we started expanding into art galleries, Kendone Gallery, Billich Gallery, the Great Synagogue, all sorts of spaces that weren't too big that could have that intimate feeling. And I was the host for all of the concerts, 
just giving people insights into the music and not the Wikipedia stuff you could look up, but just funny anecdotes, you know, the ironies of, you know, a composer writing really happy music when he's got a child dying, <laughs> when yeah. um, it's, it's the ironies of life because quite often in music, we search for that which we don't have in our lives. We search for peace when our life is chaotic. We search for mystery and chaos in the music when we're a bit too stable, when we're a bit too ingrained in our routine. So we realize this intimate exchange is incredibly uplifting for both the artists and the audience. And we feel like we revived some old tradition and some forgotten simple art form of just coming together mm. over music. I mean, because that's all, after all, how all the greats would share their music, like back in the day, you know, Beethoven and um, absolutely, Chopin. you know, Chopin didn't really like to play in concert halls, he was one of the most no. virtuosic concert pianists in the world. He only played around 30 concerts in his lifetime. He loved salons, so he'd take out his ballads and he'd premiere his works in salons, in lounge rooms. You know, imagine people standing around the piano and Chopin's playing. Mendelssohn liked to invite his guests and play duets. Uh, Beethoven wasn't as friendly in salons, <laughs> but he still liked to attend them. It was just common practice. It was really common practice. And smaller halls were common practice until Franz Liszt ruined everything. Uh, <laughs> with wanting bigger and bigger halls and the ideal of the romantic pianist with a thousand listeners. But I, I think the biggest problem with really big halls is you miss the intimacy you miss the human contact the 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 body heat the vibrations embracing you and that's what's been so exciting with live at yours we've really connected with our audiences and many have become our friends yeah you mentioned eleanor belting out for whatever better word uh, an aria you know she's used to singing in a the stage of the opera house for two thousand people whatnot do you find yourself performing the same work slightly differently in that space? Does it, 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 does it inevitably produce a different internal response from you, or is it actually the same? Absolutely different. It's, it's like going on a date. All you can do is bring yourself as a sincere self, and, you know, if it's raining, you're going to jump under the covers with your date. Um, if it's fine weather, you'll do something else, maybe drink a Sauv Blanc. I mean, the experience mm. changes. All you can do is bring yourself and... That's the beauty of live music. You never know what's going to happen. And that's why we need to commune. That's why we need to attend. Uh, you know, as a conductor, I, I've been privileged enough to go on tours with some orchestras and play the same pieces six, seven, eight times in different halls. Every single night is so different because you're responding to the air. You're responding to the acoustics, but mostly you're responding to the listeners. Because it's like a tango, you know, yeah. you you can only push or give as yeah. much as, as the resistance you get. And in that resistance is where the magic happens, where you're allowed this natural resistance. So you're not really leading and the other side's not really listening. You're both engaged in the process of creation. And that's when... Yeah, the magic really happens. You rattled off a list of uh, regional venues there, I think Orange Bathurst, um, a few others. This sounds like the ideal way of doing concerts for relatively small, smaller regional communities where they don't have, you know, six million people living, they only have uh, 100,000, 200,000, whatever. Did you find those audiences particularly responsive? They were unbelievable. I mean, we've planned six regional tours this year for Live at Yours and 
we're lucky enough to get some grant support from the Create New South Wales um, funding program, and the audience was just phenomenal. The response is incredible. I think because they live with nature, they live closer to nature, they have more space, more time. Mm. Even in the halls when we performed in Orange and Bathurst, we felt a bit uncomfortable because we used to lounge rooms by that time. Uh, and yes. we thought, oh, this is too big. Too big yeah. So, for example, in Bathurst, we actually got the whole audience to sit on stage around the piano Ooh. rather than in the hall. Um, we managed to fit everyone there and we made it basically another salon. Yeah, well, why not? <laughs> and with all the Live at Yours concerts, we've kept the same format going. We have question and answers we let people get involved and the whole idea is not us and them not artists and audience it's all us Mm. and the more engaged the audience is the more challenging it is for the performer but the more they have to give Mm. so it's a really exciting process you're on the entire time you're performing even when you're not performing exactly (laughs) right well i think we have to have our first piece of music now and i believe this takes us back to the very beginning Uh, This is a a bit of opera from uh, Tchaikovsky. Can you tell us what we're about to hear? We're about to hear King René's Arioso uh, from the opera Yolanta. This is Tchaikovsky's very last opera. It's a short opera and not performed often enough. I got to hear this when I was four years old in 1989 at the Odessa Opera House, which I've since come back to conduct at. And Yolanta is blind. And she's grown up in this kingdom, and her father, King René, has told her her whole life, well, basically, he's made everyone around her make her believe that she's not blind and that there's nothing wrong. So no one can speak about colours, no one can speak about the light. And he's created this fairy world for her, um, because she is blind, and now he's brought in a doctor to hopefully heal her of her blindness. And whilst the doctor's in to see her, he's lamenting his basically praying to God, please let there be a solution. I want her to see.
Nikolai Gyarov as King René in Tchaikovsky's Yolanta for the soaring aria there, René's Prayer. Edward Downs was conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. The first choice of my guest in conversation today, the conductor, Vladimir Fanchil. So, Vladimir, tell me how the four-year-old you absorbed that sound. Look, I think this whole opera is a fairy tale, and I don't believe in taking children to concerts that are specially made for kids. I think kids should go to all sorts of concerts. A great example of this was... uh, when my daughter was three and a half, I actually needed to see Gergiev. I had a meeting with him. My wife was singing at, at the Vienna Opera at the time. So I had to take her with me and Gergiev was rehearsing Parsifal. Now, this is a difficult six-hour opera. And I sat through the general rehearsal of the third act. My daughter didn't move. She was so enchanted by the story. She was so impressed by the music the quality of the music coming out it's a fairy tale you know at the end of the day opera is takes you to another world it takes you to a parallel reality and you can live in that reality for a while and what i find most important is to have convincing and amazing performers doing it and then you can take a child to anything um so as a child, I was obviously deeply impressed by this experience of Yolanta, and in the end, it's a happy ending, which is very unusual for Russian. Yeah, um, or opera you know, generally, really. <laughs> well, of course. You know, Russian fairy tales, English fairy tales are once upon a time, and then they lived happily ever after. Russian fairy tales are once upon a time, and they died together on the same day. <laughs> Whether they lived long and happy life or not. <laughs> no. So this opera was of course, made a huge impression on me. And just the opera house, the Odessa Opera House, is a very special place. Mm. It's very, very beautiful Mm. theatre. So your first instrument was the piano, which is a common route for for most conductors. Tell me about the music in your your early life in terms of being surrounded by it. Firstly, Odessa is a very musical city. Uh, Secondly, my mum's a pianist. So first, she taught at home for a while. I I listened to piano my whole life. I, I grew up with it. It was just a natural second, third, fourth language. Um, music really is a language of emotions. And if it's if you're constantly surrounded by it, just like our daughter is, um, whether she plays an instrument or not, it's a deep part of her subconscious. It's a deep part of her life. So whether she likes it or not, it's just a language she'll, she'll inadvertently understand. Mm. And yeah, music was just part of my everyday. So you're four years old in Odessa hearing that aria. When does your family move to Australia? Five. Next year. Next year. So what, what the prompted the move? Collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think mum realised that things weren't looking very rosy at that point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she chose Australia. So was there a culture shock when your family arrived? Yeah, absolutely. And my mum said, I'll meet you at the bank. And this friend said, okay, which one? And in the Soviet Union, in Odessa, there, there was only one, you know. Mm. There were a few things like that that happened that were quite <laughs> funny. Uh, of course, there was a culture shock. I didn't speak a word of English. And yeah. I went to Bondi Public School. And, uh, Although you're only five shocking. at the time, so did you, did you notice there was a difference? I think so, yeah. yeah I was teased. Yeah, I was teased for being Russian mm. for a few years. And then I moved to study in Russia and I was teased for being Jewish because apparently that's a nationality in Russia. And then I moved to Germany from Russia and finally I was Australian. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, you can always know how the other half feels, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> yes, uh, I've been everything. Um, but tell me about that development of your of your musical talent as a child. At what point uh, are you learning the piano and learning music because it's just part of your life? At what point does that become, this is going to be my life, this is going to be my adulthood? I don't know. You know, when you are naturally speaking a language, uh, it's so second nature to you, you don't even realise how important it is to you. So when I went to university, I actually started a course in actuarial studies because I love mathematics. And then after a year of that, I realised, hang on, because the maths was taking a lot of study and a lot of time. I cannot live without music. I, I mean... This is just too much time away from music. And then I realized, wow, this was so important and vital to my everyday breathing that I went to the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and got into piano major and started studying piano. And it just went from there. <laughs> Quite seriously from there. And then and then I realized I wanted to do conducting after doing a little conducting masterclass. And then I ended up in St. Petersburg. Mm, that's quite a journey. Um, you also met your wife at the con. Yes, I did. She was studying singing. I was studying piano. She was still also at Sydney Uni, uh, finishing an arts languages course. And, yeah, we worked together a little bit. We didn't think it would be a relationship. We were just writing a lot of poetry to each other. It was a very romantic start. And then we actually wrote a lot of sonnets to each other. Oh, yeah. That's lovely. It was. Then I ended up going to Russia to study. Mm. And a year later, she joined me. And then... Were you trying to have a long-distance relationship during that? or was it We just weren't trying. We were doing, doing it. it. Yeah, yeah, it was extremely challenging. Five years. Uh, but from year three, she was spending a lot of time in Russia. She became one of the young singers at the Marinsky. Mm. Then she did a course in the UK, a master's degree. So she was commuting a lot between the UK and... Russia, mm. which is quite challenging, and then, yeah. That thing where you're both musicians, you're both... Work takes you to diverse places, work and study, uh, and you both need to take those opportunities when they arise. Can you ever manage to synchronise that? I mean, you mentioned she got uh, some jobs at the Marinsky. Is that part part of that, trying to synchronise locations? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just go to work wherever it is mm. um you're really led by by the work it's interesting that most people they book their holidays and they sit at their desk and plan and dream of when they'll go on holidays mm. most musicians sit and dream of when they'll actually get to perform uh, and when you get to perform you think yes finally yeah. i get to express myself and it's the greatest joy i mean i i wrote a little bad poem about it the oh, other yeah. day can, can yeah, i share no, it with please you? please I like to show bad poetry sometimes. (laughs) In preparation to jump off the cliff of the mundane, one collects memories, photos, and that old scarf with residue perfume. One opens the body's grandpa clock to stop time, let the sound of the night wind pass, and passionately kiss gravity goodbye. On stage is beyond the cliff in freefall, and soul opens its wings to embrace the endless depth of sky, to confront closet demons, to part with the physical bliss of love, of holding onto the earth and her to you. And then you crash land. Body's grandpa clock restarts, and gravity pulls you back with heavy arms. The mundane re-enters like an old friend, and as the jet lag of the experience fades, a twinkle in the eyes remains. 
That's absolutely lovely. Was there a title? Have no. Untitled. No. We don't get to the title. I, I basically write a bad poem a day. Wow. <laughs> and it's something I started during COVID. Um, during COVID. Is that, because, is, that, is that an alternative to doing Sudokus and... and- uh, and yoga and yeah. yeah, I find it's a great way to find my own reflection. Mm. And do the words just flow out, or do you? They do. No, it? it's yeah. just it's a incredible it's talent. Schopenhauer. It's mm. it's a stream of consciousness. I've been doing it since I was sixteen, so yeah. I, I realised I don't do it often enough. Do you include them in program content program? I sometimes recite poetry, but it's usually Shakespeare or someone that I really admire, Emily Dickinson. Yeah. Um, I think that's lovely. It's, a, it's incredible talent, and it's a it's a bit of a lost talent. People don't write poems to each other. I think it's awesome. People don't write letters; they write tweets. Yes, uh, one hundred and forty-four characters or less. You know, one of my favorite things to do when I start studying a piece of music by Tchaikovsky, say, mm. is to go back and look at his letters to Nadezhda von Meck, to his sponsor, mm. and you get such an insight into the personality, into the person, into how how incredibly arrogant he was asking for huge money needing to go on a holiday, <laughs> how incredibly passionate he was about a piece of work and how fragile he was when it was badly received. You get such insights into a person's soul through their letters. And I think it's sad, sadly lost art form. Um, I'm just happy that live performance is still very much alive and kicking and Quite honestly, people say that there's a dying audience, there's a dying audience. They've been saying that for 400 years. Mm. There isn't. No, the audience is not dying. It just takes people a while to realize what's really good in life. Mm. And if there's a great education system, people realize earlier on. So in the Soviet Union, it was just so common and it was such a political ideal, I guess, a cultural ideal to aspire to music. So you had a lot of young people interested and in countries where you don't have that education, people get there later in life. But at the end of the day, it's classic because it relates to all people of all walks of life in all times. Mm. It talks to emotions. Our emotions don't change. Anger, joy, sadness, we all experience the same things. Well, I'm glad that when the scholars of the future in 150, 200 years' time uh, are studying uh, the great Vladimir Fanchil, they'll have some poetry and uh, letters to, to, to add to, uh, add to their, their knowledge about you rather than... Uh, a series of tweets. <laughs> That's good news. I want to go back to St. Petersburg, though. Um, so, to all intents and purposes, when you leave Australia after, you know, I, I guess it's getting close to 20 years by then, you are Australian, very much Australian, and so you go to St. Petersburg. It was a huge shock for me, of course. As an Austra- I'm an Australian boy who grew up in Bondi, basically. And I end up in St. Petersburg, and the first thing you do, you know, you go in the street, you smile to everyone. Because you've got a lot of sunshine, you're happy. And why, why not smile? Life's good, right? I was seen as some kind of crazy person for smiling. Um, that's the first <laughs> thing I noticed. No one smiles. You go into someone's home, they really open up and smile. But in the streets, and it's, it's a side effect from the Soviet era, because if you're smiling, you're either A, an idiot, or B, you've got something that someone else doesn't. Uh, so both of which aren't good to have shown in the street so no one really showed their emotions until you got them to open up or until you got into someone's home and they're such incredibly warm people and open-hearted so that was the first culture shock secondly the level i mean the level was just insane um my harmony my solfege level was just all in infantile stages and i had to play catch up quite Mm -hmm. seriously 
the third thing that was a huge shock was music was not just about music. I realized that especially as a conductor, uh, the whole course, it's a five-year course, and it's not just about where to place your hands for one, two, three, four. I could teach you that in a minute. It's about understanding art. It's about knowing poetry of the time. It's, mm. it's about being a cultural ambassador. And that was another cultural shock. I didn't realize just how important it is um, to swim in the sea of, of, of each era and to, to really absorb it and understand all different art forms of, of that era, of that time. Mm. It's, it's not simply a study of music or technique, which, which is also extremely important. Mm. So. I, I want to come back to 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 Petersburg, but I think we need to have a bit more more music first, and we might be jumping around a bit in terms of your your timeline. But um, our next bit is actually a bit of Bach or Bach slash Celotti. Can you can you tell us what we're going to hear and, and why you want us to hear this? So this is a piece played by Emil Gillels. Gillels lived in the same area of our dacha, our holiday house in Odessa. So my grandma used to listen to him practice. Uh, he was a Soviet legend. And this, his recordings are something I really grew up with. This piece in particular, the B minor prelude, is something very special to me because it's something that I've come back to throughout my life as a pianist to play and also as a listener. Whenever I get into strife or I feel emotionally down, I listen to this to get me to rock bottom because this, on one hand, B minor, Tchaikovsky's Pathetic, or all the most tragic pieces, it's the eternality of death it has the function of getting me right to the bottom and then at the same time picking me up so i've always turned to this piece i think what's really special about it is the constant flow because it has this time ceases to exist and you just exist in the vacuum of this music and uh, yeah you're just taken away by it Zolotti's arrangement of Bach's prelude in B minor, performed by Emil Gilles there. 
The choice of my guest in conversation today, conductor Vladimir Fanchil. Vladimir, listening to older recordings like that, I mean, that's more than half a century old now. Do you see a difference in the style of playing? Absolutely. I mean, firstly, most recordings today are happening live. Very few people are actually going into the studio and recording and re-recording five, ten takes, days on end until it's perfect. So that's the first huge difference, especially with orchestras. Mm. Um, I think it's a question of finances as well with orchestras to keep in and also no one buying CDs. Yes, I hear a, I, I hear a difference between that sound and and today's music. It's not that one is better than the other. There are pianists today like Sokolov, Trifonov that I greatly admire and I think have something to say. Um, for me, Gillels, as I said in particular, is very stoic and special for that quality of his playing. Mm. The Rubinstein recordings are very stoic and special and you can really recognize them. I find it's really evident with the orchestral recordings. You can clearly hear Kusivitsky's orchestra. You can clearly hear Fort Wengler's sound. And that's because at, in those times, conductors spent much more time with their own orchestra. Today, we get eight to 12 weeks as a chief conductor. Mm. Then you basically spend most of the year with your own orchestra. So you're really shaping the sound. And those those dictators, as they're called... One can complain about their attitude and their style of conducting and managing, but no one can complain about the quality that they were producing and the very special and characteristic sound that they were all achieving. Mm. So it's about time, really, about spending time. Absolutely, isn't everything? Mm. Um, Anything can only blossom as much time as you put into gardening it. (laughs) Are you able to... I mean, the time aspect aside, because, I mean, those restrictions are what they are in in the modern world are you able to take any of that for your own playing performing conducting i try to um it's it's extremely challenging because you're given as a conductor you're given what you're given Mm. quite often i'm given the soloist so i have to come up with the second half i'm given this many rehearsals so you just do what you're given um, but that's why I formed my own Odessa Festival Orchestra, mm. and that's a project I'm really excited about because I'll take 10 or 15 rehearsals if I need to, and we can actually shape a sound. And The budget will let you. <laughs> and the budget will let me. And look, it's basically what Richard Tognetti's done mm. with Australian Chamber Orchestra. They've got their really a distinct sound, and they're renowned for it, and they're doing something very special because... There's a clear artistic leadership and there's serious dedication and time Mm. going into it. So I I really admire all these projects going on where they're stopping time and they're not part of the major wash of (laughs) uh, flow happening of, you know, four-day rehearsals, concert, 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 four-day rehearsals, concert, concert, concert. It's They're taking time out to do something really special. Mm. So with your Odessa Festival Orchestra, you've got a, a set group of people that you, you've you've brought together that are the same each time it'll perform or will it yes. be so so but isn't that part of the exercise of these um orchestras where you, you get the people together and they get to know each other so much that they then create something which isn't just the same sound as what you might hear somewhere else? Exactly. I mean that's exactly what I'm trying, trying to, to achieve mm. with it. Uh by spending a lot of time together they'll 
they're coming together from all parts of Ukraine. So from Lvov, Kiev, Dnieper. Uh, I've got a concert master of the viola section from Vienna who's got roots in Odessa. And what's special is we're basically marinating in each other's company That's a nice for way days. Of it. Yeah, we're drinking, eating together. Mm. We're basically living in each other's company and discovering the music together. And rather than leadership, dictatorship, I'd like to see it as coming together to to discover the music together and have a creative output with it as as a group. So going back to your studies in St. Petersburg and, you know, the steep learning curve that you had to climb, did you ever think of packing it all in and just walking away? Oh, many times. Look, one of the things was the climate. It was hard to understand, not even the cold, but the darkness. You know, in October, I thought, oh, here's a month of darkness. November, still dark. December, it's light even between dark. midday till three. And oh. I thought I was counting over a hundred days by that time of not one sunny day so it was tough and then you walk into the conservatorium i was conducting scheherazade for example one day and i was conducting the first movement and these are waves crashing against the shoreline he's an admiral and my teacher says do you understand this is the ninth wave where's the ninth wave where's you're not getting to the culmination and i'm saying what ninth wave and he said, I was off ski. And I, I, I was really embarrassed, but I had no idea. And he was so upset. He closed the music and he said, lesson over. You're going to the Russian museum. You need to see Ivazovsky's Ninth Wave. Interestingly enough, I then worked out that Ivazovsky was also an admiral um, in the Navy, just like Rimsky-Korsakov. And they had a lot in common. They were around at the same time. And he's painting basically expresses what I should have been conducting. <laughs> uh, but that knowledge is inherent and expected from from students. Yeah. And, yeah, that was just one of the many experiences of cultural shock I had there. <laughs> well, I think that leads us into our next piece of music, which is a part of uh, Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. Uh, now, the performance, though, here is uh, Valery Gergiev, uh, and I think you mentioned his name before when you were... Uh, taking your daughter, I think it was? Yeah, So is that why you want us to hear that you've worked with Gergiev? When I was in St. Petersburg, I went to a lot of Gergiev's rehearsals and performances, uh, but I never approached him to conduct there because I thought there are too many uh, people wanting that. So I left Russia and I came back a few years later and I had my debut with the Marinsky Orchestra and I keep coming back as a guest conductor now, which is... A huge privilege, and that's a place where you hardly get any rehearsals. Uh, my last concert there, were, I conducted two symphonies. I had three hours for one symphony, three hours for another symphony, and a one-hour sound check, and that was considered a lot. Mm. Uh, but the concert was fabulous because the orchestra gives, and a lot of the orchestra members I've studied with, so it's just so special to come back to that to that city and to that orchestra and I think what Gergiev has done is remarkable in building so many concert halls and putting Marinsky on the world map
Valerie Gergiev conducting the Kirov Orchestra for part of Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. The choice of my guest in conversation today, conductor Vladimir Fanchil. Uh, Vladimir, you said that you know you might only have four or so hours on each symphony in those rehearsals when you're conducting. I mean, I appreciate that the, the players are superb, sublime, excellent, unquestionable, but how can you insert your personality, your interpretation in that short space of time into, into an orchestra? As a conductor, it's really like dancing a tango. And with some orchestras, you get a partner that you can just, without negotiating or talking, you just start dancing and it works. Mm. And with other partners, you're stepping on each other's toes. Even though you have the best intentions and you're really polite and you're trying to make it work, it just doesn't. With the Marinsky, I have a very special relationship. And when I come in, we just work. So part of that is discovering together and being so in tune with each other and they're incredibly perceptive so they're extremely quick at changing at adapting and responding to gestures and this is one of the really special things of the St. Petersburg Conducting School talk less do more with gestures the gestures should really express everything Mainly the eyes should be expressing everything, but your hand gestures, technically you should be able to say nearly everything with your hands. Mm. And that's something that Timur Karnoff uh, does exceptionally well. Simeon Bichkov, everyone from the Petersburg School has, has a real talent for that. So, yes, we only have very limited time, but they're able to respond so quickly that we're able to achieve much more than with some other orchestras when I have a week. Yeah. So it also depends on the human aspect, and luckily that human aspect works very well. Mm. So you finished your studies in St. Petersburg. What's the, the first professional breakthrough, real professional breakthrough moment for you? Simone Young. Mm. She comes along. Um, I've had lots of powerful women in my life helping me <laughs> in all sorts of ways. Uh, but Simone Young was the first to give me my first professional engagement as her assistant conductor with Prince Igor at the Hamburg State Opera. Ah. So from St. Petersburg, I moved to Hamburg and assisted her on Prince Igor. I was thrown in the deep end. She was busy in Vienna conducting and I had to take quite a few rehearsals by myself, which was really quite a challenge and exciting at the same time, working with David Poutney, the director. Um, And yeah, that was my first engagement. And then Simone said, I should go to Berlin and meet Daniel Barenboim. And, um, Berlin is really the place where you should settle. So Eleanor and I moved to Berlin following Simone's advice. Daniel was away at the time. And I happened to go to a rehearsal of Ivan Fischer's, who I really admired for his Mahler recordings at that time. And I sat through a rehearsal. In the break, I came up to him and I had a chat. And he was really intrigued by the fact that I come from Odessa, I'm Australian. And he said, oh, we should work together. And I was just quite shocked. This was my first week in Berlin. And he's the person that I'd really love to mentor me. And he's saying, let's work together. So I come home and I tell Eleanor. And she said, oh, you know, it's probably just hot air. You know, people say things. And then he invited me to assist him just on a one-off basis. And then that became a partnership for three and a half years where I was assisting him in Berlin and with the Budapest Festival Orchestra and that was probably the most incredible experience of my life. So what was the most eye-opening thing about working with Ivan? The humanitarian aspect. Ivan is all about sincerity and expression. He constantly says, perfection is not the goal. Sincere expression is. Mm. 
and Ivan always searches. This was another incredible thing. You know, as a student in St. Petersburg, you're constantly, because you've got colleagues, you're trying to be better, you're trying to be a perfectionist. You're trying to do things more perfectly, more ideally. And then with Ivan, he's always searching and he always does things differently from one rehearsal to the next. And he's in a constant search, not of perfection, but of sincerity of expression, as I said. And that was hugely eye-opening. And again, he's someone who's got his own orchestra and can rehearse as much as he wants. And my first experience with him was when I uh, first experience in Budapest was I arrived at the airport and he said he'd pick me up and I was really excited here's this big shot conductor you know in Europe he's a huge name Mm. and I was expecting him to come in his Ferrari or Porsche or whatever it was (laughs) and he arrives in a 1960s Trabant so imagine a Mr. Bean car, basically mm. a mini, but it's a, like simp- a, Soviet era a car, simpler so Soviet, yeah. and it's got no power steering. And there's this funny guy <laughs> in his little hat, his cap. And he's like, Vova, get in. <laughs> and he drove me around Budapest and he's so passionate about it. And he was showing me all these bathhouses because, you know, they have these spas, yeah, thermal yeah. bathhouses. And then at the end of the huge excursion, I said, so which bathhouse is your favorite he goes oh i don't really know i haven't been to any (laughs) (laughs) anyway straight away we went to a rehearsal and this rehearsal was uh for one of his pieces and it was literally like a dysfunctional family of the most talented musicians you've ever seen just coming together late at night he'd just call this rehearsal because he needed to do a recording of a section of this piece in the morning so he said let's do a rehearsal and whoever could leave their kids behind and just come at eight in the evening Mm. till midnight to rehearse. They had the most amazing fun. People were getting up, um, playing standing, playing sitting. You know, it was a real Balagan style atmosphere. You'd expect the Budapest Festival Orchestra to be rehearsing somewhere like the Sydney Opera House or somewhere. Mm. Really amazing. They rehearse in this really funny rehearsal space. It's just a room. It's just a big room and the whole atmosphere is very very much a family and togetherness so for me the lesson was it's all about human connections and that's how far you can go with the music so after your time with Ivan you felt it was you were ready to go freelance that must have been a bit of a leap into the unknown (laughs) well Ivan always encouraged me to take any conducting opportunities that I could whilst I was his assistant so I had a lot of time off to do my own thing and I was very lucky to get a debut with the Konzerthaus Orchestra Berlin where he was chief conductor and also with the Budapest Festival Orchestra which is obviously one of my favorite orchestras in the world simply because most of them are friends yeah so I was very lucky to conduct Prokofiev's Seventh Symphony with them and, yeah, after that, I started my own career. Yeah, well, your career was well underway, but your career blossomed. <laughs> it, it did, it did, yeah. That that really helped. But you've worked with a lot of big names as well. I mean, I've got Radu Lipu and Schiff, to name a few. There's a whole, a whole raft of them. What's rubbed off on you? Anything? Everything. What's really interesting is, you know, Eleanor also, she won the Yelena Abrasova singing competition, so we were friends with Abrasova. We got to spend time with Rado Lupu, with uh, Emmanuel Axe, Andras Schiff, yes. Mm. What's interesting about it, the the higher profile the person, the more simple they are. 
Mm. The more grounded they are, the more humane they are. And they can afford to be completely sincere in themselves. They don't need to wear any masks because they've made it. So it's a real pleasure uh, spending time with them because they can just have fun. And a lot of them, they're like kids. You know, we went out for stakes with Radolupo after a concert at the Berlin Philharmonic. I was assisting Ivan at that point. And he had this funny bib on and he's eating ribs, telling jokes the whole night. These people, they live in a fairy tale because they're constantly performing. They're doing their dream job. So what's left other than to be a child? <laughs> it's a bit of a worry, though, that you sort of imply that uh, when you're at an earlier stage of your career, you have to put on a mask to some extent. Or is that just natural, I think, regardless of our careers? Look, it's natural. I think we try and imitate, um, as young artists, as any young artist, you look at Picasso, look at Matisse, their early style, it's imitating the older styles. Um, Debussy, Ravel, their earlier styles also imitated the old masters, and then they find their own language, they find their own voice. And I think that's what's most important as an artist, to continue that journey, to find your voice and not just become one of the common ones, uh, so then you have something to say and that's something, the way you say that something is special. Is there a particular performance opportunity that you felt your unique voice kicked in properly? There have been a few. Uh, my last concert with the Marinsky, where I was conducting Beethoven 8 and Dvorak 8, I just felt something incredible happened and I was the orchestra allowed me to push the boundaries of holding pauses as long as needed, which was a bit too long at some points, to highlight something. Um, yes, there were moments of magic. There were also moments of magic with the Budapest Festival Orchestra, which I didn't think I'd achieve because being a, an assistant and seen as an assistant for, for years and conducting only in bits and bobs uh, and then getting your own program, it's difficult, but we found our own connection and yes, there were moments there as well. Mm. Um, also in Romania, I've had one of those experiences. I was conducting Rachmaninoff's Bells in Cluj, which is the capital of Transylvania. They've got a fabulous orchestra. You know, the Romanian string players, they're, they're fabulous. And we just had something really special going on in the performance. And I don't know if it was me finding my own voice or us as as a unit of, of musicians responding to the hall and responding to the music in a way that was obviously sincere enough that made a special moment happen. Mm. You mentioned Dvorak 8 and you mentioned the Budapest Festival Orchestra. Two, those two are going to come together in our next piece of music. Yes. <laughs> what do you love about this performance, Vladimir? Everything. The sound. Just listen to the string sound. Listen to how sweet and how unified the strings are. Listen to the level of expression in each note from one note to the next. And also, obviously, the flair, the, the Austro-Hungarian flair. This is one thing that I really learned with Ivan, is that Dvorak should not be seen as a Slavic composer, but rather as an Austro-Hungarian one with Vienna as as the base, as the, as the capital. And... This movement, I, I think we'll look at the third movement. It's so free and not square. And it's, uh, you know, it's very Viennese and, and Eastern at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
gorgeous third movement of Dvorak's Eighth Symphony as performed by the Budapest Festival Orchestra under Ivan Fischer. An orchestra and uh, a conductor, very important to my guest in conversation today, the conductor Vladimir Fanchil. Vladimir, we touched before on having to have long-distance relationships uh, with your girlfriend, then, then wife. You've got children now. How has the life of a musician collide with the raising of a young family? Well, firstly, I'll preface this by saying it doesn't work. (laughs) And yet here you are. (laughs) Because music is a child and it requires all of your attention all the time. At the moment, as we speak, I've got the five-year-old and Eleanor is traveling around with our eight-month-old Bella in Europe singing Mimi in Antwerp. So I don't know how it works. We haven't seen each other in a couple of months. And, you know, you just live day by day and... Just have to be grateful for what you have. And we're extremely blessed to be able to perform as artists. And we're even more blessed to have had children. The practical side is messy and ugly. And I don't know how it works. Um, I'm trying to figure it out still. So if (laughs) if I ever work it out, I'll let you know. Are you introducing them to music beyond the process of osmosis, which will inevitably happen? Absolutely. My daughter's favorite music at the moment is zazz and french chanson oh lovely yeah it's very sophisticated taste she she just found it on youtube and this is what she wants to listen to at the moment Uh, so of course of course they they're growing up in a house of of music and art you know we went to the matisse exhibition I, i just think it's healthy that it becomes part of their world it becomes part of their mind's garden and there are certain areas of that garden that they can revisit throughout their lives that will give them infinite joy like it's given me. Mm. You know, when I arrived in St. Petersburg, because my grandmother took me to galleries and museums, French Impressionism was something really important to me in my life. When I got to the third level of the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, which is full of Impressionism, one of the greatest Impressionist collections, I felt at home. There was something chemically going on in my brain and or in my mm. body that made me feel I, I know these works of art they're, they're like familiar faces and suddenly I'm in this faraway land from Sydney from Bondi and I feel so at home and so at peace so I think it's vital to expose children to the classics from an early age because they'll get the rest of the stuff later on they'll always find the chips and the the pop culture but there, there must be a grounding in classical art. Mm. So when things return to a bit more normal and you're doing more work with the Odessa Festival Orchestra and, you know, back in Vienna and all the rest of it, um, the children will obviously keep moving around with you? Yes, we haven't worked that out yet, <laughs> that far. I mean, our eldest daughter, Floria, she went on 46 flights, we counted, by the time she was one. Wow. So she went everywhere. With two kids, she's starting school in Sydney now, so she'll be, will be based here, moving around to Europe. Uh, mm. Look, ask me in a couple of years. I, I, and then you can say what you're supposed to have done. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. We're just trying to make it work. Yeah. And fitting music in, fitting parenting in, uh, grandparents really help. Just circling back to live at yours and going back to the thing as you know, as, as things open up, this this is something that's not just a, a flash in the pan COVID thing. This is something you want to sort of develop uh, and keep going well into the future, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it's just vital for, for our art scene because I, I've seen 
the effects of having high quality artists in smaller spaces the impact is profound so we've got this live at the independent concert series called concert and cake sundays and this sprung to mind to me because in Europe and in Russia I saw families going together as families with kids really dressed up to concerts on Saturdays and Sundays and I thought we need to do this here I mean we need to get families involved so we're giving away free tickets to children with a ticket at adult and we're going to be serving Madame and Eve's beautiful French cakes and we're going to have incredible artists like Simon Tedeschi and Andrew Havron playing a program called Ferdinand the Bull We've got Eleanor Lyons with Andrew Goodwin singing a beautiful program of arias and duets about love. And the idea is families come and bring their children. And it's not programs dumbed down for children. It's music for music's sake. And people can come in and rise to the occasion and really relish in the in the joy that that brings. So I, I urge families to bring their kids, come along, make it a family event on a monthly basis so music and culture is just part of their everyday lives and it's not an unusual strange thing they do once every five years for a date. <laughs> now, we've talked about various role models and various mentors that you've had. I hate to say it, but you're now sort of getting to the age and level of experience that you're starting to feed your knowledge to those who are younger than yourself. What's the most valuable thing that you'd want to share with someone starting out their career now? Work is more precious than talent. And don't be afraid of the process. I think the most important thing is to love the process of making music because there are so many challenges and failures and difficulties in becoming a musician and the odds are really against you to actually make it. Um, it's hardly possible. However, if you love the process of practice, if you love the sound that you're making, fall in love with the process mm. and suddenly things start falling into place mm. if so you're lucky and if you have enough backing. I mean, there are so many factors that you need to actually make a career work. But to a young musician, just say, learn to love the process, learn to love your instrument, learn to love making a sound that's beautiful. Because if you can make one sound that's beautiful, you'll want to connect it to another beautiful sound. Mm. And then the the attraction of your instrument will be like speaking to a friend. It'll be like having dialogues. And, yeah, I think the most important thing is to have a relationship with music that's that's loving and that's prolific, mm. that makes you grow. It's almost like you're saying talent is obviously important, but there's no substitute for hard work. Absolutely. Uh, I, I know a huge number of talented people that didn't go half as far as people who are just very dedicated and consistent at working and love the process mm. and they perform in all the top halls of the world and I would never go to a concert of theirs <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but they made it because they're consistent and they don't give up so sometimes you get those rare few that like Andras Schiff like Grigory Sokolov like Trifonov where the the work and the persistence and the perseverance comes together with immense talent and you think, wow. And I actually believe that everyone has talent. They just need to find it. I, I don't believe that there's, you know, there are some people like Daniel Barenboim who can speak eight languages fluently and in a rehearsal of an opera speak to their different cast members in their languages, just flipping from one to another. He's got photographic memory. He can just memorize scores. He can play piano 
pretty well. <laughs> and he can conduct immensely well. So there's that kind of talent. And then there are people that don't have that but have something really unique and special to say with their music. And they have to work incredibly long hours to memorize just a Beethoven symphony. Yet when they come to perform it, they'll say their own unique message. So we all, we, we all have our own voice if, if we dare look in the mirror and, and find it. If we're not afraid of the demons and not afraid of all the imperfections that we see in ourselves we're all fragile, we're all fallible, and I think the important thing is, as an artist, to A, love the process and be dedicated. Um, there's there's a time that one should mimic and aspire to others and listen to recordings, but at the end of the day, you really need to find your own path. At, at this point, I've had my mentors, and I'm really enjoying exploring my own voice, and I don't know if I'm there yet, but I'm certainly... Yeah, on the path to searching. Well, Vladimir Fangio, that sounds like an ideal place to end. Thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. Thank you so much, Simon. It's been wonderful. Conductor Vladimir Fangio. Find out about how he's breathing life into intimate recitals at liveatyours.com.au and you can also follow his other goings-on at vladimirfangio.com. Well, that's all for this edition of In Conversation. Thanks for joining me. Remember, you can find the program in podcast form at 2mbsfinemusicsydney.com slash inconversation or from wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. We'll go out with Vladimir Fanchil conducting the Budapest Festival Orchestra for the finale of Prokofiev's Symphony No. 7. <laughs>